Changemakers, welcome to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Warlow and I have a great guest lined up for you today. Now this podcast is about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, personal, professional and social transformation. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Each episode, we're going to be diving deeply into topics at the intersection. Sometimes we'll be interviewing thought leaders, sharing tools and resources, and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations, tackling the challenging issues of our times. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I have one small request. Would you be willing to go to iTunes or whatever app you're listening to us on and subscribe and leave a rating and review? It's so helpful to us because it enables the algorithms to find us. It helps people find our community and it helps our guests get their work out to more people in the world. It's a small thing, but it would mean such a lot to us. Thank you. Okay. Are you ready to be inspired? Because today our guest is Dr. Marsha Reynolds. Now, Marsha is a world-renowned expert on inspiring change through conversations. She has delivered programs and coached leaders in 41 countries and reached thousands online. She has four best-selling books, including The Discomfort Zone, Wonder Woman, Outsmart Your Brain, and her latest, Coach the Person, Not the Problem, a guide to using reflective inquiry which gives tools to help you easily apply coaching skills to transform and uplift the way people see themselves and the world. So welcome, Marsha. Thank you, Jane. Oh, I am so excited for our conversation, <laughs> I can't tell you. And we've got a great title for today, which is Breakthrough Conversations in Times of Acute Stress. Now, before we dig in, like some of our listeners, they don't know you. They've just heard mm -hmm. that professional bio. So I'd love to really open up our conversation by asking you, you know, who's the real life mm -hmm. woman behind the bio? Tell us a bit about her. Well, you know, when we look at milestone events in our lives, I've certainly had a, a number of them uh, in the many years I've been around. <laughs> but there were two in particular. Um, and the first one was when I was a young adult and uh, had gone down a very dark path, um, which actually I turned 20 in jail. <laughs> <And Wow>. Yeah. <laughs> See, you didn't know that. I didn't I, know that about you. I no, I didn't. You. Right, right. No, it was a pretty dark time in my life. But, you know, I, if you look, I have multiple degrees, a couple of masters, a doctorate. And I always say, but that degree that I learned about life from those women in that place is irreplaceable. Mm. They really taught me who I am and the value I have in the world. And they kept saying, you know, and with the advantages I have, which I do, mm. um, that I could go out and make a difference. I really felt that they saved my life, you know, mm. that I wouldn't be sitting here with you if it wasn't for them. And it made me feel as if I had a purpose on this planet. I just didn't know what it was. <laughs> you know, so, but I felt like, but I want to make a difference. And I thought I was going to like change the criminal justice system, but that didn't work. They didn't want to listen to me. <laughs> and 
in my first master's was broadcasting and, and, but I didn't end up doing anything with that. Um, but I ended up in a training department <laughs> in a right. hospital. And my first assignment was the management training and the leadership. Mm. And because I was so young and I had no experience, when I sat down with them, I said, you know, here's the material and I don't have expertise. Let's just do this together. Let's see what we can discover together. And because I laid it out that way of not being the expert, but being a learning partner, mm-hmm. we had an amazing experience. You know, I went on to get a second master's in adult learning um, and running training departments. And I was really looking at I realizing that I could use my experiences to help people change their lives. But just standard instructional design didn't seem to work. You know, people would come to my training classes. They'd say, oh, we love this. This was so, you know, changed my life. It was so wonderful. Thank you. And give me the happy faces. And then within days, they were back doing the same old thing. So it was years before I finally uh, found this thing called coaching. Mm. And at the time, I was studying um, not just learning behavior, but how it impacts the brain. And when I married the two, coaching and learning in the brain, I realized the magic, Mm -hmm. that this is what I had been looking for in order to make a difference. Now, again, recognize that it wasn't always before that, this was about leadership conversations, about work teams helping people work together so i wasn't necessarily looking for a new profession i was just looking for a way how can we help each other to learn grow realize our potential change the world <laughs> you know <laughs> so it was everything that you said and so yes i have become passionate and obsessive with coaching and have become a very well known coach in the world but to me It's still all about how do we help people to change for the best? How do we impact the world by how, uh, by our conversations with one another? So that's been my motivation (laughs) all these years. Gosh, I love that you talk about wanting to change the world or having a purpose at such a young age. Mm -hmm. Because for me, that didn't kick in until much later. So (laughs) I I love that you had that awareness. You had that level of awareness. Now, you Mm -hmm. talked there about kind of that intersection between learning and neuroscience. Can you tell us a little bit Mm -hmm. about that and what makes it so powerful? Yeah, well... When I found coaching was the same time that uh, neuroscience was really coming into play. It was the mid-1990s. Right. And, uh, you know, Goldman was just coming out with his book. I was one of the first people to teach emotional intelligence because I had that degree in instructional design. (laughs) (laughs) I could put together a training program. So when the government went looking for someone online, they called me. They said, we want someone to teach this new thing, emotional intelligence. But the only people we could find were you and Daniel Goldman, and he costs too much. So can we hire you? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Which launched that. Um, (laughs) But it really taught me about the three brains Mm -hmm. and what they were learning that, uh, you know, what what had been common uh, thought was that 
it was our cognitive brain that was most important and whatever we thought about would then dictate our emotions, our behavior. And then as you know, Jane, they found out that was upside down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that whatever we perceive first goes through our primitive brain and so we react and then it hits all of our social emotions. And then by the time it gets to our cognitive brain is distorted. Well, but what's interesting about that when I started to, to bring together learning was each of those three brains has a memory and it's a different memory. And when we teach, uh, you know, teaching isn't really to change people's behaviors, just to inspire them to go out and try something. It's yeah. an event, not a process. When we teach, we're just using that cognitive brain. Okay, the memory and cognitive brain is called short-term memory. <laughs> 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 you know, and how did we honestly think people would remember and change their behavior when all we were, all we use is short-term memory, even, you know, memorizing in school is short-term memory. It's why we can't take the same quizzes today and pass. <laughs> you know? And when we scare people, which is what so many companies would do, you better do this or else. We use um, the memory in the primitive brain, which is permanent. And so my brain says, okay, this is the way I must always do it. And then you ask me to be adaptable to change, which is what we're asking of people today, right. you know, with the acceleration of change, I will resist you because my brain says, no, you can't change, right. you know? And so change resistance comes from how people learn in the first place. So when we look at the middle brain, the middle brain is where creativity is. Mm. You know, when you have that aha moment, when things start to come together from what you knew before and what you're seeing now. And it's like, oh, wow, well, that's fascinating. I see it differently. But that's what coaching is. Mm. You know, so we use reflection um, so people hear themselves and they can actually look at their stories and their thinking. And then we ask questions out of our curiosity about what we just heard, which makes them really stop and examine, oh, I did have that belief, but that belief is old. <laughs> you know, that, of course, it doesn't work anymore. Like right now, everybody's assuming um, the future is going to be awful because we're scared. <laughs> right. You know, and it's just an assumption. And so um, we, when we operate at the middle brain, which is what coaching does, we actually get people to rewire um, they're, they're the way they see themselves in the world. And once they rewire how I see myself and the world around me, it automatically changes my behavior. And I can't go back. Right. I can never unlearn what I learned about myself and the world. I may not like it, <laughs> but I can't unlearn it. And so, you know, that's what makes coaching so powerful. It's, it's what people don't understand. They always say, well, it's kind of like therapy. It's like, no, it's a learning technology, you know? And again, that was my second master's like 30 years ago. And so I'm very focused on how do we learn? Yeah. How do we learn? And that's what coaching is. Um, so I'm just so happy that it like fell in my lap. <laughs> Right. Yeah. right. And I love that you've described coaching in that way, because I've never mm -hmm. really, honestly, I've never really thought about it 
as mm. a learning technology. And mm. I know that I meet lots of people who are just starting out on a co coaching journey. They, mm -hmm. they may just be starting out in coach training school or they may be considering it. And one of the things that I hear a lot is, do I really need training? Like all my friends come to me for advice. <laughs> Aren't I going to be a great coach? Like, what would you say to that? <laughs> well, you know, first off, I always say, you know, coaching isn't intended to make people feel better. It's intended to make them see better. Right. And generally when people say, oh, you know, you're so nice. <laughs> <laughs> that has nothing to do with coaching. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that I listen well. Well, that's a great place to start, that you're a yeah. good listener. Um, and then you can adapt that. But coaching is a very specific technology. That's why we have competencies. Yeah. And it differentiates it from coaching or from therapy. And understand my doctorate is in clinical psychology. So I truly understand that what we're doing is not therapy. Right. <laughs> you know? And um you like in any technology you have to be trained in the technology to use it well mm. and um so again that they come from a place of caring yeah. about people that's fabulous that they care and they listen what a wonderful place to start you know i always tell uh, companies when i work for them uh when i look at how they promote leaders you know, I always say what needs to be number one on your list is that the person likes people. You should never be promoting someone who doesn't like people. <laughs> That's right. like number one criteria <laughs> of leadership. And yet it happens. Because yes. then I worked for tech companies for 11 years and that was not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so with you there. I've had the same conversations like nice should be a leadership competency. Yeah. Be nice. <laughs> And understand what that is. Yeah. Again, that doesn't mean um, to not tell the truth. No, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I'm looking at our title, Breakthrough Conversations in Times of Acute Stress. Yeah. And I know that, you know, coaching is really about powerful conversations. Mm -hmm. But like in your mind, what makes a breakthrough conversation? Yeah. Um. You know, there's a couple things, uh, but you know, what I was just talking about is working mm -hmm. in the middle brain. You know, that's, I always say our brain is a box of stories. You know, we carry a little box of stories in our head. And every time we face a situation, we pull out a story and then we act based on the story and it happens instantaneously. We don't think of it as a story. We just think of it as this is the right thing to do. What happens, and, and this is, I'm sure you know from reading my book, I'm very adamant that what we practice is what's is the practice of reflective inquiry. Right. There's a lot of mistakes out there um, that thinking that coaching is just about asking questions. Right. Oftentimes I just use reflection even more than question. The question just follows up to confirm my mm -hmm. reflection. What happens is um, uh, John Dewey, who coined the term in 1910, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a book called How We Think, and it really defines coaching. And he was an educational reformer. Right. He wanted teachers to get students to think more broadly for themselves by just feeding back to them. So here's what I hear you saying, and it sounds to me this is what you think about the situation. 
uh, is that true? Is there any other way you can see this? That's what he wanted teachers to do. Mm. That's really the foundation of coaching is that we want people to hold their stories out in their hand and go, oh, well, that's fascinating. And, and, and activate what's called the observer mind mm. to where I can look at my stories and I see the faults in my logic and the inherited beliefs that no longer serve me, you know, and the crazy assumptions I'm making up about the future and who I'm going to be when I have no idea. And once I start to see that, it's, it's like this ping in my brain. So breakthrough is a break in knowing mm. is what I thought I knew about myself and about the world around me. And all of a sudden, when I recognize that there's something else, it breaks through the frame of my story and I expand. So it's not that I change, I expand the way I can see myself and the world around me. It actually then gives me a broader perspective of what's possible mm -hmm. for myself, for others, and for the world. So that's all a breakthrough is, is a break in knowing. And, and I always say transformation is when the light shines through the crack in our story and we can see in a new way. And so it's in a breakthrough conversation. Again, we're not making people wrong. We're just opening up a window for them to see more. Oh gosh, I love that. I mm -hmm. really do. And as you were speaking there, I couldn't help but think about the time that we're in right now and mm -hmm. how, like if I were to use that as a metaphor for where mm -hmm. we are as a human race, yeah, you know, it's almost like we've stopped a conversation that we were mm -hmm. having in the world and we're in a breakthrough reflective space now, mm -hmm. maybe to begin a new conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. I was talking to my Russian clients this morning and they were very curious about, you know, all that's going on here in the United States. And, um, and, and the question, is it going to make a difference? And I mm. said, you know, this feels like the tipping point that it's tipping over, that it really is, um, uh, making a difference and making sustainable change. Yeah. Uh, but it takes, it takes time to really do that. And sometimes it takes crisis. And, you know, I, if you look back, Jane, at companies, usually companies don't transform until they have to, <laughs> until there's a crisis, you know? So it's like the crisis yes. precedes change. And I think what's happening now is that it was, it, it is, not just that it's forcing us into reflection because we're all home <laughs> on Zoom. <laughs> um, but we're stepping back and saying what we thought we knew was true is not. You know, we've always taught that leaders should embrace ambiguity and uncertainty. And, but it was, it was an abstract theoretical exercise. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Right. do that but now they realize that there's no way of predicting the future no way mm -hmm. and they finally have to get it in their bones that they have to make decisions not knowing what the right. future will look like well they always have that in the past but they pretended that they thought they knew 
you know, but yeah. now it's clear. And so it's, it really has opened uh, the door to seeing how to lead differently, how to be with each other differently, how to honor each other differently and to honor ourselves in a different way. So I think we're going to look back on this time and say, yeah, it was awful. It, what is it? It was the, the best of times and the worst, the of, worst times. of times. That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, and it seems to me that if we kind of hold space for this being a time of great transformation for yeah. us, if we, if we hold it as a time of breakthrough, mm -hmm. I would love to know what, role you think conversations play in yeah. facilitating that change? Well, I believe that we change through conversation. That, um, you know, through all my research, the idea of self-reflection by ourselves is a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> because our ego blocks us, right. you know, from fully self-reflecting. That's why um, the neuroscientists say it's an external disruptor that we need an external disruptor, which is what a coach is. We disrupt right. thinking right. patterns and that we don't do it on our own. Um, and so we have to do this through conversation. You know, occasionally you can read things or, or, or watch a movie and see things that may disrupt you enough. Right. Um, but usually then you go talk to somebody about it right. <laughs> in order to really understand what is it that I'm learning because it must be spoken yeah. and then to integrate it into our behavior. So the conversations is still critical in making the change. And I always say that Maslow got it wrong <laughs> where he had self-actualization on the top because I say, you know, um, you could be on a top of a mountain and you can be self-actualized, but then if somebody climbs up the mountain and sits next to you <laughs> and you don't want them there, <laughs> you know, so it's like we have to learn how to self-actualize in the presence of others. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And that takes me back to what you said at the beginning about being in relationship with, right, which seems yeah. to me. Uh, a worthy conversation to be having right now yeah. uh, because when we look at power you know power over power under all those things yeah. uh, are contributing to the world we have today and yeah. yet I sometimes wonder if we've forgotten how to be in real conversation right mm. just in everyday life yeah. and also to be with someone yeah or something just be mm -hmm. in relationship with it. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. The, um, the concept of being with and um, of not being attached right. to your evaluation of me and whether mm. you think I'm great or not great, um, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the great thing about this stage of life as a woman? Yes. That's what I find. It's like I suddenly realized nobody cared anyway. Yeah. So it was all about them. Yeah, right. And so we spend our days trying to, to influence and convince people right. um, instead of listening um, uh, and being with them. Um, and, you know, I think this is, you know, a lifelong journey how can i truly be that way because um 
the awareness of when I shift into the moment of, oh, you're seeing it wrong, this is the way you need to do it, um, it's a difficult thing. Uh, I learned a number of years ago, and I am so grateful that I my work is international um, because my clients have taught me to recognize judgment. Right. <laughs> especially my Chinese clients, you know, it's like, um, they'll say something that might just triggers my judgment to me, you know, something that I learned when I was a child that right. is because my value system is so different. Right. And I love that because it makes me go, Oh, look, I'm judging. Isn't that fascinating? <sighs> Can I just breathe and let it go and come back and be present with this lovely person in front of me? Mm who wants to make a difference with people and who cares what their politics are and some of their, you know, morals are different than mine. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's about our human interaction. And so I, they've given me the chance to practice this, which isn't easy because we're all judgy people by nature, you know, by, out of survival. Right. That we walk into a room and we immediately judge where is it safe for me to sit? Yeah. And so being able to stop and recognize, like for me, it's right here. I feel judgment in my solar plexus. Right. Okay. And so the moment I get this, like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> I always tell people, you know, it's an easy thing to, um, to identify because there's plenty of places you can go, uh, whether it's to the grocery store right now, whether people are wearing masks or not, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or I always say, or go to the airport or someplace where, you know, you get really judgy. <laughs> <laughs> so you can start knowing where you feel it because you got to feel it first before you shift it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny you talking about that because um, I was at dinner. My kids are all older now and we were at dinner at the weekend and we were talking about Americans, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it's the same thing when you mm -hmm. live outside of your culture, you're yeah. kind of for the first, I would say for the first decade I was here, I was confronting things every yeah. day that I had no information on because yeah. the way we do them in a different country is different. And it's yeah. interesting now because when I speak to my, my friends and family back home, they notice, like, they go, oh, you're so American. <laughs> and I think, really? They're like, your, 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 your accent has changed a little. And they say, you still sound British, but you've got an intonation that's American, that's Isn't different. That and so, yeah. And you know, Jane, it's, it's so, <laughs> I, I also have a beef about that, a judgment. Um, and, and, you know, Philip Rosinski who yes, writes books yes. on culture Absolutely, and I yes. always say, Philip, um, I'm sorry, but when you talk about Americans, I want to know which ones you're talking about. <laughs> you know, I mean, because the North is different from the I South, know, exactly. the East is different from the West, the exactly. Midwest. It's like, we're very different. You are. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I, I, and, and any country that's big. Yeah. You know, in China, Shanghai is different from Beijing, is different from um, Shenzhen down near Hong Kong. I mean, it's very, very different. Yeah. You know, and so you can't stereotype one country. You know, and I've had many people like the French say, oh, yeah, the North, the South. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Talk to the British about the French. And that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> 
So yes. So, you no, know, we can't do that. And then there's the generations and, and how right. changing. And so um, to, to, to judge someone by the country they were born in is like, mm-hmm. oh my God, how crazy is that these days? <laughs> yeah. And it's easy done, isn't it? Where we, yeah. it's funny because I've been thinking a lot recently about kind of the metaphor of war here in America and how it's so deeply embedded. We don't even notice the struggle, the fighting that we think we have to do. And it's just interesting to me because, you know, and I think it's the same in the UK. It's not just America. This is something Mm -hmm. that I know throughout the Western world anyway, not so much about the East, but definitely in the Western world. And it's interesting the way our sense of being Mm -hmm. like informs like everything. Yeah. Like, you know, we were talking about this before we actually pressed record today, you know, this, this sense of being, and if you, mm-hmm. if you haven't traveled internationally, if you haven't worked and maybe lived internationally, it's hard to get that perspective in a way. There's something for me about the global mindset mm-hmm. and where we're headed right. in the world that feels important somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, unfortunately in these times, you know, coming back to the, times of uncertainty and yeah. fear uh we fall into those traps even more yeah you know it's like it's all the chinese fault it's like right. <laughs> <laughs> and and now they're like and 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 so many people are are looking at the americans as the worst because right. we don't care right. <laughs> right and again it's like well there there are those that don't and there are those that do um so we we fall into the uh, you know fear makes us see people more as enemies yeah yeah than just partners in this journey called life yeah mm-hmm. and that brings us back to that being with like yeah. when we encounter the other whatever mm-hmm. that might be whether it's a person or something that mm-hmm. is unknown or uncertain to us yeah. how do we respond like yeah what do we do? Are we able to be in relationship with something that's quite dissonant or unknown? Yeah, that's a tough one. It, um, yeah. Again, theoretically, we'd like to say I know. that, <laughs> you know, and then we fall into it. Um, uh, and, and so I think it's an awareness and, and not to ever expect ourselves to be perfect. Yeah. You know, like I said, we're judgmental by survival. by by nature so I always say just say I'm a judgy person (laughs) (laughs) and that way it allows me to to catch yeah when I'm being judgmental and shifted and you know that's what emotional intelligence is it's not to make your emotions go away I mean you can't you're a human being (laughs) and that's a part of our our structure but to be able to um, recognize and, and say, I can manage this instead of it's controlling me. You know, there's a fascinating book um, called Who's in Charge by mm-hmm. a neuroscientist named Michael Gazaniga. And he asks the question, do we really have free will? Um, because our non-conscious brain, you know, which has the, the two other brains, <laughs> right. um, is so powerful when we have an emotion and right now we're all being run by emotions right that if we are not aware of what's happening and accept it 
and say, oh, look at that. That's fascinating. I'm angry. I'm irritated. I'm judgmental. <laughs> that if I can do that, then I do have free will. Mm-hmm. I can say I am those things. And, and right now, this is what I choose. Um, if I'm, if I don't do that, if I think like, well, I have a right to be judgmental, those people shouldn't be doing that. Um, or, uh, you know, everything is awful right now. So uh, I'm just going to be irritated. Okay, that's fine. But make it your choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Recognize that it's your choice and not outside circumstances that are creating uh, the way you feel. Otherwise, you don't have free will. You know, you're just allowing yourself to be a puppet of your, you know, your, your abusive brain. <laughs> right, right. And mm-hmm. I, I just want to pick up on something there because you kind of went over it quickly as though it was something easy for people. So I just want to go back to it because I'm not suggesting that's what you meant. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, when you talk about choice, I think mm-hmm. that's probably for me when I think about my clients that I work with. Mm-hmm. that realization that they even have a choice is probably yes. one of the first breakthroughs that comes in, in the coaching relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think for some people that is completely out of their universe. They don't have a mm-hmm. sense that they even have a choice. And it reminds yeah. me of like, you know, when we are experiencing acute stress Mm-hmm. When we are in that unresourceful space, mm-hmm. we just get in our own way. And mm-hmm. therefore, mm-hmm. of course, there's no choice because we think yeah. we have to. Like we don't have it. I don't have a choice. The amount of times clients have said to me, I don't have a choice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, and that was the thing. You know, this, what's interesting about the book is at the end of the book, he's pretty negative. <laughs> <laughs> And says, no, I don't think most people are going to master this. Um, For one thing, because they don't want to, because it's exactly what you said. It feels, it's better, it feels easier for me to justify um, what I'm doing than to say, I have choice and it's up to me. To take, um, you know, that word response ability (laughs) that I am and powerful over my responses um, is hard work that a lot of people don't want to do. But that's your choice too. Um, You can either choose to move forward on the path and learn how to do this. Uh, And I always say you can either be the master uh, of your brain or the victim of your emotions. Which do you Mm. choose? Mm, gosh that's really powerful yes and you know I do I mean our title is breakthrough conversations in times of acute stress and as I'm listening to you I can't help but move to that meta space Mm -hmm. and think about the world and Mm -hmm. what the world needs from Mm -hmm. us right now and how for me, I remember standing on the stage in Las Vegas at the 2012 ICF conference and, and, and talking about coaches as the facilitators of the new human dynamic, right? That was my language at the time. And mm-hmm. that's what I remember saying. And for me, I think if there's anything, if there's any modality in the world that has the potential to create the conversations that matter, I think it's coaching. Yeah. What's your sense of that? 
Masha? Uh, well, I think it is because of the way coaching connects us. Right. Um, and, and helps us to expand our thinking. So I'm not just in this conversation to make you right. see, think a different way. Right. I'm in this conversation to understand. And as I come to understand you, you come to understand yourself. Yeah. And I think that's the power of coaching and why it's really critical right now. Um, and, and, and right now people need to be listened to more than anything else. Yeah. And they need to know that you're listening. So it's not just shaking your head and saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, I hear you. That's not enough. Mm. You know, so um, when I reflect back to me and I just say, so you're telling me this is what's most important to you. And I can see that as you get into this conversation, you get even more deeper in your feeling about it. So I, get, I feel the passion underneath your words. Just saying that, recognizing what the person said and the emotion that they have behind it, mm. not just makes them feel heard, but creates a connection. It's like, wow, you really got me. And we've been craving that for years. Yeah. You know, we've always wanted people to do that, but even more so right now that it's not just the uncertainty, but what's happening in the polarization of uh, how people see what should be done and how they should act and what should happen next um, is making us that really judgmental, uh, putting us in that place. Can we step back and really come into conversation together? you know, as a partnership to where I fully want to understand you. I want to be with you. I may not agree with what you're saying, but I need to understand it just so I can be with you in this space. Mm. There's so much power to that. Yeah. Mm. And I'm noticing how unusual that is in everyday life for mm. people because whenever I'm out and about, which has not been that much recently, but when I am, I notice how people are almost having consecutive dialogues. It's like they're, they're not listening mm. to understand as we talk about yeah. coaching. They're listening right. for, you know, well, what's the next thing I'm going to say? Yeah. So it's like these parallel, it's not even a dialogue, it's parallel monologues. Yeah. But yet they're kind of, kind of connecting mm. in conversation. It's almost like we've lost that that real power of, mm -hmm. of dialogue, of, of understanding the give and yeah. take, the energy exchange in a conversation, for example. Yeah. So, I think yeah. you're right, Jane. I think this whole social distancing <laughs> <laughs> has had an impact. Um, you know, as we distance, we disconnect. Right. Um, and I think coming back together is going to be an interesting thing of how we do that uh, in our being with each other, not just what yeah. we say. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's true. I do. So mm. let me ask you about your hope for the future, mm -hmm. because you've written this great book, you know, about really about what we've been talking about today. Mm -hmm. And, and I love some of the distinctions you make in the mm -hmm. book. One of them, which you've already talked about a little bit, but for people who are not in the coaching field, it might be interesting to hear a little more, which is you say, you know, there's a misconception that coaching is just about asking questions. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. 
it's about inquiry. Can you just speak a little bit to that for the people that are not coaches listening? Yeah, that was another great Dewey, Deweyism that um, questions get answers, but inquiry provokes insight. Right. And that that there is a big difference um, in that. And, and I say we've created this cult of the magical question and how many books are on the seven most powerful questions you can ask or <laughs> it's all about the question. And, and um, we've fallen into that. Um, but the question, and the question may make me stop and think, but it's again, only to search for an answer to what you're asking me, not to really look at, uh, well, what made me think that way? Mm. Um, what is the story that I'm telling? And you know, even in the ICF competencies, being that I was a part of creating that way back when, <laughs> it was never just questions. Mm. Um, there were a lot of uh, statements around uh, sharing what you notice. Mm. You know, what do you hear? What do you see? What are you sensing? And to be with someone in a way that I can really pick up what you're not saying. And that was always in our training. What is it they're not saying, but, but it's out on the table? How can we get to that? Um, that's a deeper conversation so that it turned into just the questions. <laughs> it's like, no, it was not ever supposed to be that way. And again, I, I think that um, uh, because this came out of a technology that was created so long ago um, that people weren't really seeing what the whole concept of reflective inquiry is. Mm. And that if my intention isn't just to make you answer a question, but to stop and really look at your thinking, I need to help you see your thinking. So Richard Boyatzis um, uh, writes about emotional intelligence and coaching. Uh, he made a statement, and I, and I paraphrase it a little bit, but he said, you can't see outside of the box until you see the box. Right. And that's what we're doing. But yeah. we can't get people to see the box with just a question. We have to like say, here's what, what I hear you saying, that's your box. <laughs> so you're telling me that this is the way you see this situation, which then brings forth the beliefs, the assumptions, the conflicts of values that are making you paralyzed. Um, the things that you thought were going to happen that didn't and it made making you angry. Mm. When we start to put all that on the table through reflection, and then my question comes out of curiosity, not out of memory. Right. You know, so I will ask you a question based on what I noticed. It's far more powerful in making you stop and think about your thinking. And in that moment that you think about it, you realize what I thought was true is not. And that's a breakthrough. Mm. Even if I don't know what it is that's out there, that I recognize there's something else than what I thought it shifts the way I see myself in the world. So we need to add inquiry uh, to the importance, <laughs> not right. just questions. Right. And I love the distinction you're making here that's really helping our listeners understand the difference between just a conversation 
mm-hmm. and a coaching conversation. Right. Um, you seem to be articulating that really clearly, which I love. Now, our audience um, that's listening here, they're, they're people who care about the future of our world. Mm-hmm. And there's some conversations that we've had around the fact that, you know, we're, we're aligned at Sacred Changemakers with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And we know they've been around for a long time, as have some of the not-for-profits that are, you know, kind of making moves toward climate change and inequalities and social justice and different things. They've been around a long time. And clearly, their way of influencing and changing people mm-hmm. hasn't really worked because we've not moved the needle much at all in the past 10, 20 yeah. years at all. So do you have any advice, Marsha, for <laughs> our change makers yeah. that are listening who care deeply, who want to influence right. the world? Like, how can they have mm-hmm. these breakthrough conversations, especially now in this time of acute stress? Any advice that you have? Well, first off, I want to say information doesn't change behavior. Right. <laughs> okay. And, and I think that's the biggest problem. We think if we right. keep giving them the information yeah. that people will be shocked enough or, or sad or whatever, and we'll change. Right. Um, I always ask my students, um, so how many of you um, know you should be doing something, but you're not? Everyone knows they should be doing something that they're not. <laughs> Information doesn't change behavior. So if all you're doing is spending a lot of money and time putting out information, um, the only people that will change are the people that already believe the way you believe. Right. You know, that they're, you're just confirming their beliefs, which is good. We need to continually do that. But you're not going to change the people that see it differently. Right. The only way we can do this is through conversations. You know, there was a great example in the 1990s, Deloitte uh, recognized that they were hiring amazing women out of top universities. Um, But somewhere along the way, they were leaving and they weren't making partner. And the CEO brilliantly said, you know, we have to get to the bottom of this. Well, most of the people said, well, they're leaving to have families. Um, and and they accepted that for years and he says I, I don't buy that now so they went and they tracked down quite a few of the women and they found these women had started their own businesses and were doing other things and um, maybe they had families but they still had careers mm-hmm. and they said well you know we weren't getting the best uh, projects and challenges there was discrimination and and here's some examples subtle things and, um, you know, like I had a client where her boss, she, when she was pregnant, kept calling her the little mama. And I'm like, you have to get him to stop that. Mm. <laughs> and it's true. When they had layoffs, she was the first to go. Um, you know, there's just that, that unconscious or uh, just under the radar bias that's there. So what he did was they did on this survey, surveying for a year to uncover these biases. And then they set up dialogues with um, all the male leaders and women. And, you know, there was always so many women at the table to talk about, um, when you say this, this is the impact on me. And it was within the dialogues that um, mostly men, but uh, women as well, started to recognize oh, you're right. 
that's a crazy belief I have. And why did I do that? You know, I did do that. I did block that woman. I thought she wouldn't want to travel because she had children without even asking her. You know, things like that. And they changed the culture. And within two years, they had three times as many women stay and become partner. And it was, but he's, but they said it was the dialogue. It wasn't the information like, look, here's the stupid beliefs you're having and that's causing bad behavior. That wouldn't have changed them. It was the dialogue where they really listened to what the women wanted and the pain they were experiencing and the, and how they were impacted by beliefs that were hurting them instead of helping. And there's a big difference in dialogue than just telling people. So I know it's more expensive and it's time consuming to set up dialogue, you know, with people, but I believe it's the only way that we can truly change um, people's minds mm. is when they get to know us, you know, and understand and have that. Um, you know, there's another story, Derek Black was in the Washington Post who his father was, um, his, his godfather was the head of the Ku Klux Klan and his father ran a, a very conservative um, right talk show that he thought his son would take over. And his son went to this college um, that they weren't happy he went there because there was those liberals that were there. And um, he was invited to a dinner one night by a, a group of Orthodox Jews who he had, his father had said were the devil. And it, he ended up having this dinner with these people. And he said, I went trying, thinking I was gonna convince them and I left loving them. And he went home and his father wouldn't let him in the house um, because he said, he told him, I can't do your talk show. I can no longer make these people the enemy. And it was only through a dialogue that lasted through the night of them listening to each other, that they were able to come together, both sides, and understand each other in a way that shifted mindsets for both. Mm. And I believe that's the only way we can make massive change is through conversation, yeah. is my belief. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I, I'm totally with you because what you've just described there for me is, you know, everything you've been talking about, Marsha, mm -hmm. which is like the understanding the insights, the listening, mm -hmm. all those things so very important to that. Yeah. And, you know, and I was feeling the connection within those dialogues as you were telling the story, because yeah. that for me, there's something in the energy of connecting that comes mm. with true dialogue, honest, open yeah. dialogue. I respect you enough to listen, no matter yes. that our values and our beliefs are, are highly different. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's a there's a there's a bond that forms there where you mm -hmm. now know they're not the other. They're yes. not something that's so yes. different that you have to battle against. It's yeah. Yeah. We start to see the similarities, the connections, mm -hmm. the interconnectivity, which is just wonderful. It really is. So let me ask you this. One of the things we talk about here is um you know, I, I often laughingly talk about the fact that in my life I had a job, then I had a career, then I had a career with purpose, then I had a business, then I had a business with purpose. Now I have a calling. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
if you had a calling, like what, what is it that life wants from you? What's most important? Well, you know, that is the question I've been asking all my life. (laughs) (laughs) And if you recall, I wrote a book called Wander Woman. I do. Because every time I think I have it figured out, then I realize, oh no, it's something else. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm (laughs) so with you. Um, But I think it's actually been a refining for me that I knew that um, I was here to make a difference and help people in some way uh, to learn to grow, but I didn't really know what that was. And, and times when it was frustrating, when they wouldn't listen to me, you know, I'm like, well, this is a waste of time. I quit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and again, recognizing that the calling isn't something you just all of a sudden hear a voice and you know Mm -hmm. what it is. You know, it's almost like we have to go on this journey of discovery um, to see what is it that's most powerful. And and for me, you know, what's so fascinating is that, you know, I started um, becoming known in this coaching world, you know, decades ago. Um, But I still was like, oh, well, coaching, you know, yeah, I do this thing called coaching, but I do these other things. and, And I wasn't hearing that no, it's coaching. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's not just coaches because you're right. It's for all of our conversations, no matter who we are, if we're wanting to make a difference and and make change. So, uh, um, you know, there's this end of a yoga practice where the woman says, um, you know, to thank uh, from the east, the west, the north, the south, and everything that has brought us to this moment in time. Mm. And I think that's what I look at when I say, so what is my purpose? What is my calling? When I look at my journey, that everything I've done, even if it wasn't great or bad, <laughs> has brought me to this moment in time. Mm. And if I heed that uh, and just share what I'm learning because I'm passionate about it, um, that it will make a difference and it will be appreciated by many. Mm. Um, and so it was more for me a listening uh, than it was trying to make it happen. Yeah. yeah. And I'm still discovering it. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's a lifelong journey. It's not a destination that we get to and then we're done and we know what it is. It's, it's definitely, there's an unfolding and an emergent piece. Yeah for it i think you know i'm a a great fan of uh gosh i'm blanking um victor frankel oh yeah and you know and he got through the concentration camps not knowing exactly at all what he was going to do Mm -hmm. but just saying i know when i get out i have a purpose to make a difference and he just held on to that that I have to make it out because there's something that I need to say that's going to make a difference for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't write uh, Man's Search for Meaning uh, for fame. <laughs> right. It was like he had to write it and put it out there. And, and, and once you put it out there, as you know, Jane, you don't know if people like it or not. Well, right. people like my book. I don't know. <laughs> they may hate it. <laughs> But it's more about this is what I feel like I need to do and share because I think it's important. And we just keep doing that and see how it falls. 
Yeah. And, and then what calls us from that point? Yeah. And that's great advice. I think that really is. It really is. So one final question, Marsha, you know, if there's something you'd hoped we'd get to today, something that you want to share with our listeners, what might it be? Oh, I don't know. We've gone so many places. <laughs> you know, one of the things when I teach that I think it's really important, uh, no matter what position we hold, is I always say, people want you to be present more than they need you to be perfect. Um, so you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to know exactly what you're going to say. And is it going to be the right thing? Because you can change it in the moment, but they want to know that you're there with them, that that's so much more important. And, you know, it was John F. Kennedy who said, when the dust of the century falls over our cities, we too will be remembered not for our victories and defeats, but for our contribution to the human spirit. Oh. Oh, goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. That shifts everything for me, just hearing that. Yeah. That's great. Marsha, thank you so much. What an insightful conversation. I've enjoyed every minute, and I know our listeners will have too. So thank you so much for sharing oh, thank you, your Jane, wisdom for with us today. <laughs> thank you. Okay, guys, that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Before we go, let me ask you. Are you passionate about change? Are you looking for more meaning and maybe purpose in your life? If so, we want to invite you to visit us at sacredchangemakers.com where you can sign up for our five-day program, Awakening the Changemaker Within. It's free to all podcast listeners and just come home to yourself at your very core. We believe that within each of you lies the possibility to unleash human potential. Change can be a regenerative force for good, and all change begins within as personal transformation, which can be expressed within our professional lives and ultimately creates a regenerative social impact in our world. Again, you can find our free program at sacredchangemakers.com. Our growing network of changemakers are our sponsors who help us keep doing our work in the world. If our episode resonated with you today, we hope you'll consider joining us. And for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the work you do to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.